0: Father, we thank you so much again for this day you've given us. Um, it is really beautiful. The, the rains didn't come around us here, so we've had a nice dry morning, and we thank you for it, for being able to go out and have breakfast outside, as many did, and, or maybe at their campsites, whatever, Lord. It's just, okay, we've been going through the tabernacle. I still love it. Saturday night, when a lot of people were coming up to me and asking me, oh, Michael, what are you speaking on? I'm speaking on discipleship. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) That was a lot of people who gave me that reaction. I don't blame you. I mean, how many times have I sat through things and I probably would have been the same way if someone said, oh, discipleship. Wow, yeah, that sounds really interesting. I hope, though, you've seen a different way of discipleship with this. And I really think that this is all scriptural-based. I think that um, I'm not... I have not been going off on man-made traditions and ideas and stuff like that. We've been going right through the Scripture, and we have seen how the Scriptures in the Old Testament and the New Testament actually work together and how Jesus is the fulfillment of a lot of this. And it all makes, at least in my mind, this all makes perfect sense. As we're coming into a relationship with God, if you recall, coming into the tabernacle as God set it up. Remember, the tabernacle was where God dwelt with the people, you want to come to God. This is how you do it. You went through the tribe of Judah because there's only one way to get to God. You came through the tribe of Judah. We today go through a member of the tribe of Judah. It's Jesus Christ. We go into that entrance. Do you notice this? We, come, we go into the entrance, getting close to God, carrying all of our dirt and filth with us. We go through the gate with all of this. We don't stand outside the, the gates of the tabernacle. We wouldn't stand outside cleaning ourselves up, getting all cleaned up like this, getting rid of our No. We went into the tabernacle through Jesus, carrying our sin to the altar. So many people I have talked to have told me, well, if I'm going to become a Christian, I better clean up my act first. No. Let God do the cleaning. We don't do good cleaning. You don't believe me? walk in the nature center. We do not do good cleaning. And so many people are under this impression that if I'm going to get close to God uh, and and become a Christian, then I've got to clean up my act. I remember working at a school many years ago, back in the 80s, where a custodian, he was not a Christian, and we talked many times, and he told me, he says, well, uh, I I do believe that I, I really need to become a Christian. I don't doubt that whatsoever. He says, I've always had a hard time trying to clean up my life though so that I can become one. And I'm like, no, that's not the way it is. You let God do the cleaning. Let God put his Holy Spirit inside of you making the changes. You try and do the changes on your own, it doesn't work very well. So the tabernacle, you came in with the sacrifice, remember? Then you put your hands on the animal in this symbolic thing of transferring yourself and your sins onto this animal. Then the priest slits the the things Throat. The blood comes up and it is, it is, as it says in Leviticus 17.11, it is by the blood that sin is atoned. And then the animal representing you is divided into four sections and it is sacrificed on the altar, which as Jesus even points out, we sacrifice to God our minds, our soul, our heart, our strength, everything we give him in those four pieces of the sacrifice. Then we are saved. Now we can go closer to God, but because of the tabernacle was dirty place to work, and because in today's light, we are living in an environment surrounded by sin and temptation, we still get dirty. Just because we're Christians, we're not sinless. We still get dirty. Thus we need to be niptoed. We need to have cleansing. I hope some of you last or yesterday, sometime during the day, took a little time to niptoe. I'm seeing a lot of heads going up and down. Great. Don't let that stop when you leave here. Take that with you. You want to get close to God? That's what we have to do as Christians. And now we come to the holy place. In the Old Testament, this was as close as the priest could get to God during every day of the year except One. The high priest, only one day of the year, was allowed to go into where the presence of God was manifest, the Holy of Holies. But every single day, the priest would be inside the holy place. And as we look inside, with the image I'm showing right now, for those of you who are listening on the uh, on a re, uh, taping or on the internet, I'm showing the inside part of the holy place. Actually, it's two rooms. And on, uh, as we walk inside, the first thing we're going to notice on the right is a golden table. And it has a picture, and there's bread on this. This is the table of shell bread. Across the way to the, to the left, there is a golden uh, lampstand called a menorah. Then on this dirt floor, you keep going back towards the back of this uh, holy place. There's a small altar called the Altar of Incense. And then there's a curtain. In this illustration, the curtain is open to let you see what's on the other side. But that curtain is normally always closed because that's where God's presence would be manifest. That's the closest they could get was coming up to that curtain every single day. Jesus, recall, at the cross, when he died, that curtain was ripped apart, giving us daily access to God's presence. Whoa, cool. So, as we get into the holy place, there's three pieces of furniture, and this is one we'll talk about today. There's the lampstand, there's an altar of incense, and there's a table of showbread. Now, what in the world was all that about? Yeah, it's all described in, Levit- or in the book of Exodus on, on how it's supposed to be built and, and all this. So what does this have to do with anything? Well, if you look back at the picture I've given you in your handout of the tabernacle itself, you can see a section I've blown up here. It's the holy place. Again, the holy place only has one entrance. You're coming into the presence of God. There's only one way to do it. And we've already seen, as John wrote, Jesus is the only way. He is the gate. He is the one that allows this. But in those days, the priests could come inside of here and they would work in there. Every single day, they had to go inside there. And they would eat inside there because that's where the bread was kept and stuff. Um, but they would go through this one opening and then there's a table of showbread. Now, by the way, I want to point out something that's really interesting. The, outward, the outside courtyard, everything was made of a type of metal. Do you remember what it was? Bronze, you come into the holy place, the only metal you see is gold. Gold, the symbol of deity, of God. Even in the ancient cultures, um, King Tut's tomb, look at all the gold. Gold was something that was always associated with deities. Remember when Jesus was born, when the wise men came, in the Christmas story, what was one of the gifts? Gold. Why? Because it is symbolic of God. Gold. Everything in this is gold. The walls are gold. The instruments are all gold. Phenomenal place. So we would come inside, as you look at this illustration, and the first thing we're going to come to is this table of showbread. That's the first thing that we walk in. And now, once the priest came inside, now remember, you have to go through a niptoe to get that close to God. So anytime they're about to go inside there, they'd have to go over to the laver first, cleanse themselves, and then they could walk inside. You just couldn't be walking by after sacrificing an animal and walking there. And No, no, no. You've got to be cleansed again. You've got to make sure you're pure, that you're holy. And so you would do this this cleanse. Same thing with us. We're going to try and approach God. Is there some sin that we need to confess? Is there something in our lives that's, you know, that makes us unclean to come before a holy God? We need to nip toe. That's what this is. But once they came inside, he would see, as soon as you walk in, this golden table. It wasn't very, very big, but a golden table with 12 unleavened loaves of bread on it. Now, the bread was sprinkled with frankincense, and each loaf was represented, since there's 12, each one represented one of the 12 tribes of Israel. It was symbolic for that. There was also a gold pitcher of wine that was kept on that table also. These loaves were baked from about 75 pounds of flour. Yeah, 12 loaves, 75 pounds of flour to make these 12 loaves. Do you know what, I can't imagine how big that loaf, each one of those loaves would be. I mean, a, a pound of flour makes a pretty good size. You're using 75 pounds? I mean, man, you'd need a lot of jars of peanut butter to cover that thing, wouldn't you? That is a big loaf of bread. So these things had to be pretty good size. So 75 pounds of, uh, of flour into these 12 loaves, that was pretty big. They would be replaced every single Sabbath. And then new loaves would be put on there. Uh, the old bread was actually what the priests ate. That was their staple food. That was for them. Uh, no one else could eat Priests could eat that. Now this is all recorded, and if you're thinking I'm making all this up, This is all recorded in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 through 9. Let's read this, and you can see how interesting this table is set up. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile. Wow, that's an interesting thing too, frankincense. Where have we seen that before? Christmas time, hmm, anyway, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion to the Lord, as food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons. And they shall eat it in the holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food. Uh, offerings a perpetual due so that's what we have now here's where we're going to get into the thing what when you're reading leviticus and you're you're coming across this and you get into this whole thing you're like why is this in the bible what is the purpose here the purpose here has to do again with jesus everything here is pointing something having to do with jesus and our relationship with god because that's why jesus came To help us fulfill our purpose in life. That's what it was. Now, bread, what is bread? Bread is a staple food item, correct? It was in ancient times, it still is today. Unless you have one of these mutated genes and you can't eat bread. Um, That's a result, by the way, of the fall of sin. um, As we keep mutating, some people are more mutant than others. Do you know that red hair is actually a mutation? any mutants in here (laughs) sorry had to go there Um, but bread has great nutrition great nutritional value it has great health benefits if you don't have the mutations it's it's really good for you Um, but the whole thing gets to why why did god have bread be part of the tabernacle and why is it important for worship remember our purpose in life is twofold to have a personal relationship with god to worship him. We're inside the holy place. We're coming into worship now. Why is this important in worship? What's going on? Why is bread an important part of worship? Sounds confusing. Well, as I said, bread is sustenance. It's sustenance. We eat this. Now, we must eat, listen carefully, we must eat to feed our physical bodies. I don't think anybody's going to disagree with me on that. And bread is a basic sustenance to the body. So that makes a lot of sense. Of course, I'm hungry. I'm going to eat bread. Voila. We have bread last night at the banquet here. That was pretty good bread, too. I like those little rolls like that. Put about a half a pound of butter on each one. I love that. Oh, you guys are laughing. Like, (laughs) you know, how much much things we do here with all the fats and the creams and uh, bacon and everything? I mean, yeah, we eat good here. And no one said amen to that. <laughs> so anyway, but that's what it is. Now, besides, now listen carefully. This is so important. Besides our physical bodies, which you have brought with you this morning, we have a spiritual self. Each one of you has a spiritual self. Now, I believe too often we feel a craving inside of our body that we mistake for physical hunger. We many times, every day, sometimes more so than others, get a craving. You all know what I'm talking about? You just got done eating like an hour ago, you know you're not hungry. You know your stomach still has quite a bit of content of food in it. But you start to crave something. You know what I'm talking about. I do believe that sometimes when that happens, it's your spiritual hunger that's happening. You have a spiritual hunger. And I can't help but think that is why so many people in the United States particularly are so overweight and obese because what we, I believe we often do is we are feeding our spiritual hunger with physical food. I don't remember too often hearing this kind of thing in church. Someone telling me, you know, some of the cravings we get, we feel it. We feel the craving. But it's our spiritual self. It actually can cause this in our minds that we need something. And so then we go to the refrigerator and we get some ice cream or we go to the, refrigerator, uh, to the cabinet, we open up and we get a bag of Doritos or a bag of Lay's potato chips or something or we'll go get a can of Coke or something like that and we sit um, and we start to indulge, trying to fill this craving. My grandmother, God bless her, Goldie was her name, her real name. Goldie lived, Gran- Granny Goldie, I <laughs> can't even say it anymore, Granny Goldie, Lived, I think, about 98 or 99 years old. I used to love to go to her house. One of the most um, dynamic Christians I ever met in my life. And every morning, whenever I was at her house, I remember her getting up very early and getting everything ready. She, she heated her home with, with coal, uh, with a fireplace. That's how she heated. She would, even the stove was one of these wood-burning stoves she would cook with and stuff. And it had a little place where water could be poured in so she could make hot water and stuff. Old-fashioned type thing. She didn't have electric or gas or something like that. It was the old type of thing. And I was fascinated by the workings of this stuff. But I remember every single morning she would get up and she would audibly say, every time I was there, she would say, before I feed my body, I've got to feed my soul. And she would sit down with her Bible and start to read. And I remember asking her, why do you do that? She says, I have a craving in the morning. I said, well, you're hungry. You're hungry. You're right. My body's hungry. My soul's hungry. It hasn't been fed all night either. I'll never forget her. My dad was the same way. And I do the same thing. Even this morning, before I ate anything, I got up. I went straight to my Bible. I am not some religious person. I'm not even a preacher. I'm a biologist. What in the world am I even doing up here? But I'm telling you, it's, I think this is real. I think this is true. I think we have a spiritual hunger, and we many times stick the wrong food going in. And I think that's our, a lot of our problems. So to be a good follower of Jesus, we need to feed our spiritual bodies. Now you might be wondering, well, how do I do that? Do I get spiritual Doritos? Do I buy the little wafers? from the Christian bookstores, all the little communion things, and start eating those? No, no, of course not. How do you do that? How do you feed your spiritual body? It's very simple, folks. We feed on Jesus, the bread of life. Now, I might have just confused a bunch of people by saying that because we hear this quite often, but what does it mean? Well, let's look at where this is talked about. In John chapter 6, starting at verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, many people, particularly children, read this passage and they get confused. They think, what? If you listen to Jesus, you will never physically be hungry? No, there's two parts to you, your body. You have the physical, you have the spiritual. Jesus here is talking about the spiritual feeding. You come to him, you don't hunger. He can supply that that you are that craving. He fills that craving, that thirst that you have. You don't need Coca-Cola or something like that when you have a spiritual craving. Get into Jesus. Get into the Word of God. I tell you, I, if you're sitting here and you're skeptical of this, I don't, I don't blame you. The first time I heard this, I was like, is this really true? And I tried it. I do believe that this is real, folks. That sometimes I know I'm speaking from personal example here, that there have been times when I have just wandered around the house, go in the refrigerator, open a door, close it, because I don't well, nothing in there is what I'm really craving. Go over to the cabinet, open the thing. I don't know nothing in there I'm really craving. And I've walked around the place many, many times. You go sit down, you do something, come back, boy, I'm still craving. You, you know what I'm talking about? And I kept going on. And then it's like, hmm, maybe I need to sit down and do a Bible study. And I go and I sit down and I start doing this, and then all of a sudden I notice it's like two hours have passed, and I'm no longer craving. I can't explain it, but I do believe it's real. I bought my brother; he's gone on to be with the Lord now. But I bought my brother; uh, he was a little shorter than me, weighed about 70 pounds more than me. I bought him a book one year called "How to Flip Your Flab Forever." saw it in a Christian bookstore, and I bought the thing, wrapped it up, gave it to him for his birthday as a joke. That book was all about this, that we many times just feed ourselves in these cravings, our spiritual cravings with food, and we miss the whole thing. So they tell you, for one, to eat properly, you know, to eat wisely, like don't have a whole big gigantic bag of Doritos and a can of Coke for, for lunch, um, Say, so tell you to eat to eat properly, but when you're when you're craving, to get into your Bible. My brother did this, and he lost over fifty pounds, and he grew closer to God. After a while, he says, "I got to tell you, that was the best gift I ever got for birthday," and I did it as a joke. <laughs> hmm, interesting things. You see, Jesus is telling us that he is the true, that he is the ideal, that he is the genuine bread from God. He came from God to us just as God gave manna in the the Exodus to the people. But in Jesus' case, he is not bread for the body, he is bread for our souls, You know, we're not supposed to be cannibalistic going up and eating Jesus. That's what confused the people. They didn't quite understand. They're they're taking Jesus literally, like, I'm supposed to come over and eat your flesh? What? They didn't get it. And the Gnostics in the first, second, and third centuries were all confused by this also. They didn't quite understand. Folks, this is what it's talking about. It's feeding our souls. That's what we're doing here. So, have you ever noticed a spiritual hunger in your life? You need to feed on Jesus. But Michael, you keep telling us, you don't tell us how to do it. Well, let me tell you. How do we do it? We feed on his word. Jesus is the word. Bread in the tabernacle is symbolic of the bread of life. Who is the bread of life? It is Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? He is the word of God. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And then John 1:14. And the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled, among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. The Christmas story. I'm going to sidetrack here for a second because I love this verse. This is one of my favorite verses. I don't know how many people here, but at Christmas times, do you guys ever have to read the Christmas story out of Luke? You know, sometimes they, you expand it, you go into Matthew's account also before you can open presents. I grew up in a house like that. And my dad would always get up in the morning, on Christmas morning, before we could open up the presents, and we'd have to get out the Bible and he would read the Christmas story of Luke. And, you know, as a little kid, you're just you know, biting at the bit there trying to get to those toys, you know? I mean, come on, let's, let's get into this. So one year I asked my dad, I said, hey, can I, can I read the uh, Christmas story? Wow. Now my dad was very impressed that I want to be so spiritual. <laughs> sure. So I remember sitting there with my dad's big, thick Bible there, and um, we're all sitting around ready to do the uh, opening, but i got to read the Christmas story. And I open up to John chapter 1, verse 14. And I said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Closed the Bible and I said, okay, we're done. (laughs) That's the whole Christmas story right there. (laughs) Yeah, John does not, by the way, John does not have the, the, the Christmas account, the birth of Jesus, because John is writing his gospel showing that Jesus is God, that he is totally God. God has always existed, thus you will not find a birth account in there. Mark doesn't put it in his gospel because... Mark's gospel is portraying Jesus as a servant. Who cares when a servant's born? So it's not in there. Matthew, though, is showing him as being a king. That's his portrait. Birth of a king is very important. And Luke, his portrait is painting Jesus, uh, the Messiah, as being man. People are born. Thus, it's in there. So that's why it's like that. Now, back off that rabbit trail. <laughs> if I still got your attention. <laughs> So, Jesus is the word of God. He is God in flesh who came down directly to speak to us. I like how the, re- uh, the writer of Hebrews writes this. In Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Wow, I like that. So, folks, very simple. To be a follower of Jesus, we must feed on his word. That means we do not need to just read the Bible. We need to feast upon the Bible. We need not just to digest it. We need to assimilate it into our lives. Now, let me point out, being a biologist, there's two terms here that I've got to make sure you understand. The word digest and the word assimilate. We often use the word digest when we're reading about material. Oh, I'm going to digest this. Um... Digestion is the breakdown of material. Right now, you guys are digesting your breakfast. You have a system. Uh, start it started at your mouth, breaking it into smaller pieces. And now, your digestive system is going to take those little morsels, break it down to its molecular components. That's digestion. It's down to the molecular components. It's a simulation that you need. Assimilation is taking those molecular components and making it a part of your life. Too many people might digest digest the Bible. Look at it, read it. Oh, that's cute, that's neat, that's wonderful. Oh, like that. And then just forget about it. They never assimilate it. We need to assimilate what we learn from the word of God into our lives. Simulation is so important. Digestion just breaks it down. Assimilate, take those molecules and make it part of your life. You have cells that every single day you have to make tens of thousands of cells in your digestive tract alone. You've got to replace it. You need DNA, you need all these proteins, you need these amino acids and stuff. Where do you get that? From the food that you eat. You assimilate. You take, you literally are what you eat. You take the food, you break it down to its molecular components, and then you absorb that into your body and you make it into you. Thus, you assimilate it. We need to do the same thing. So if you're sitting and reading your Bible like it's a Shakespearean novel, just reading through it as some little ceremony in the morning just to get through it, we've already shown you. Ceremonies, God is not interested in your ceremony. He's not interested in your religion. He is interested in your relationship. Open up this Bible. Start getting into it. Break it down. If you don't know how to do this, there are fantastic guides that are out there today on how to study the Bible and get more out of it. I teach, for the True North program, I teach 15 to those students, 15 different Bible study methods. There's a lot of ways to do this, to break it down. Really simple, I can show you, I'll tell you one really fast. Remember when you were in school, junior high, you had to diagram sentences? Try diagramming sentences in the Bible and praying about it. But one thing you really need to do, whenever you open up your Bible, ask the Holy Spirit to teach you something new. I'll tell you what, folks, he will do that. And when you get to a passage that you just don't understand, like you remember these things when you're reading something, it's like, okay, I read that. Read it again. Read it like five, 15 times, 20 times. I'm still not getting anything out of it. Don't skip it. Pray. Holy Spirit, I know this is important you put this in here. Why is it here? I cannot tell you how many times I've done that, and just in a matter of moments, all of a sudden it becomes clear to me. God wants you to know this stuff. He wants you to know his word. He wants to feed you. Let him do it. I dare you. You'll be amazed. To be a follower, to be a Christian, a true disciple of Jesus, we have to feed on his word. That means not just to feast on it, we assimilate it. So important. Now, the next piece that's what that table represented. Now we turn around and we look on the other side. Here's a menorah. I took a picture of this menorah in Israel just a couple of weeks ago. This is a solid gold menorah. It's right by the Temple Mount. Actually, um, if I use the laser, I know you can't see this on the internet, but there's a picture I took this in Jerusalem. This is in the uh, Jewish Quarter. Back over behind this, this is the Temple Mount back here in, in here. It's that close. And the Jews have made this, and they've made other temple artifacts because they're hoping and praying that their temple gets rebuilt very soon. And they've already got many of the artifacts to go back into it. So this is guarded um, right there in Jerusalem. There's guards all around this thing and stuff like that. Fascinating place, too. So we have this menorah. Now, what in the world is the menorah, the lampstand? Now, this is the only light inside the holy place. That place was dark. There's no windows. Very thick tent. And some of it was made out of leather of sea cows and stuff. I mean, it's really thick. So this place is really, really dark. And this is the only light inside from this one lampstand. It's called a menorah, and it was sitting in there. And otherwise, without this, you'd be stumbling over and knocking over things. So this light, the light from this lampstand, allows us to see. It guides our path in there around the furniture inside the holy place, which is where we can get close to God. And because of this light, we're able to see where we're going without stumbling. That light is very necessary. It was beaten out of pure gold. was fashioned with, uh, to be like an almond tree with flowers. It had seven vessels of oil. The oil was made by a special recipe. Um, it was constantly burning day and night inside the holy place to give light inside there for the priest to be able to walk around without tripping. The wicks had to be trimmed constantly. Um, or very frequently, I should say, um, and to get the most amount of light out of them. And they were never allowed to go out, so they were constantly going. After entering the tabernacle through this single gate, which represented Jesus, going to the bronze altar, going to the laver, we come into the holy place, we feast upon the word of God. Now we are standing in the light. And the light is going to help us. It's going to let us see. What does the lampstand represent? It is symbolic of God who now fills our eyes. And Jesus is the light that allows us to see. He allows us to go without stumbling if we keep our eyes on Him. He will brighten our path. Jesus is the light. Isaiah spoke of this in Isaiah 9 two. The people who walked in the darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the... In land of deep darkness, often uh, are on them has light shine. Jesus is the light, is what Isaiah is saying. Jesus is the light. He even said so in John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light. He came to save people from the darkness of sin. John chapter 12 verse 46 I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness Jesus is the light He came to expose darkness Ephesians chapter 5 13 and 14 But when anything is exposed by the light it becomes visible for anything that becomes visible is light Therefore it says awake o sleeper and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Jesus is the light. He is the way to have fellowship with God. 1 John chapter 1, 6 and 7. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie, do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's one more feature to the lampstand I'm going to mention here that's a little different. In the book of Revelation, lampstands are symbolic of the churches of God. This is a little side note I'm going off on here. They're symbolic. You read the beginning there, you come across this. Also, in Acts chapter 13, verse 47, so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the earth. You see, the church is supposed to be The light to the world. We are supposed to be the light to the world. In the ancient times, it was the Jews who were supposed to do it. God gave them these these Jews, the special people he chose, his law, he gave them the tabernacle, and they were to be the light to the ancient world. Well, they failed miserably. Read the Old Testament. You see, they failed miserably. To worship God, we need to belong to the body of believers. That means going to church. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that you have to, by commandment, go to church. A church is not a building, a church is the people in the place. We are the temple now of God. God puts spiritual gifts inside of each one of us when we become a Christian. We all have different spiritual gifts. Some people have the same as others, of course, but we have spiritual gifts. Not one is more important than the other. Paul is very, very clear on that. But we all have gifts. And for the church to function, for us to be the light of the world, we need to get together and utilize our gifts together. In doing so, we become much more functional. In doing so, it becomes easier to worship. Haven't you ever found that it's much easier to worship God in a group of other Christians than by yourself? I mean, you could do it both ways. But one seems to be a little easier. And it's a sad thing that many of us seldom utilize the gift God gave us. And you know, there's going to be a day when we're going to have to stand before God and he's going to stand up there and he's going to say, I gave you this gift. Why didn't you use it? Too many times in this country what takes place in the church is done by so few. No wonder we have massive burnout of pastors and other workers, Sunday school workers because other people don't come up with and use the gifts. And you're sitting here, well, I I don't have a gift. Yes, you do. If you don't have a gift, you're not a Christian. God promises and he puts into us at least one spiritual gift. Jesus decides what gift you're going to get. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives it to you. You have at least one gift. Many of you in here have multiple gifts that God has given you. I challenge you folks to be a light to the Gentile world, to be a light to the world in in general that does not know Christ. Let's utilize our gifts together. United we stand. It's amazing what a church can do when it does that. And remember, it's the people Utilize that gift. You can take all sorts of spiritual gift tests and stuff. There's many online. Don't take one. Take a battery of them to get more of an idea. Talk with your pastor. Talk with Bible teachers and stuff. Um, Get with someone who's really walking close with God and ask them to help you find out what your gift is. It's amazing. We need to use these spiritual gifts. We need it to reach the lost, to be a good follower of Jesus, to be a good disciple, to be a Christian. We need to spend time not only in the word of God, we need to spend time in fellowship and communion with God and his people. It's so much easier to grow when you get to utilize the gifts of other people that God's put in them and you work with them. It's amazing how well you grow that way. We come to the last part. We went to the table, across from it was the menorah. Now we walk close, right up to the curtain itself where God's presence is manifest on the other side. This was the closest a Jew could get to God any time during the day. It's the altar of incense. Notice in the illustration I'm showing... That we have here, there is a picture where the table of showbread is. The menorah, very close to the opening where you come into the holy place. Now you walk across to the very back where this beautiful blue curtain with gold in, uh, um, cherubims umbrella, uh, in, embodied into the thing. You can see that's where the altar was. It was right up next to that. And it burned incense there. And by standing there, they were the closest they could get to the presence of God. That altar is so significant. It is so important for our discipleship and following Christ. Let me show you very briefly how this works. It is just amazing. What does the altar symbolize? It's really simple. You find this in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's prayer. The burning of incense represents prayer. Maybe some of you have caught this now, about how close we can get to God. course, as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. In those days, the closest they could get to God, prayer. That was it. Look at this. In Psalm 141, verse 2, let my prayers be counted as incense before you. To a Jew, incense, burning of incense was just automatically, okay, it's prayer. In their culture, that's how they were taught. It represents prayer. That's what it is. Also, in Revelation, and when he had taken the scroll the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are what which are the prayers of the saints that's revelation 5:8 prayer is what is represented by the incense the incense is prayer so how often do you pray how often do you pray to God I want you to think about this. The closest a person could come. Think about this. Could come to God was through prayer. Even today. Even today. We Christians are to come before God, our Father, in prayer. I had a person just a couple of weeks ago ask me, an adult, ask me, he says, I don't understand why I have to pray. God knows everything, everybody knows what I need. Well, I was like a little taken back by that. And I said, well, um, don't you ever feel like talking to him? Well, he already knows everything. I said, okay, let's look at it this way. Let's look at your relationship with God like a marriage. Now, you're married, yeah. If you only talked to your wife, as often as you talk to God, would you have a very good and successful marriage? And he goes, oh, no, no, no. I said, exactly. You just don't go to God with your shopping list. You go to God to praise him. You go to God to worship him. You go to God with how your heart feels. You go to God with requests for other people. Yet you pray for others. You pray for missionaries. You pray for your family. You thank God for what he's given you. You just don't give God a shopping list and turn around and walk away. If you did that to your wife, can you imagine what her response would be? I mean, I I, I asked him. I said, just think. How many minutes a day do you spend talking to your wife? Now put that in perspective with God. And if God is supposed to be number one in our lives, even more important in our wives, something's not right. We haven't surrendered all. He is not the most important. You want to have a good relationship with your wife? You communicate. And that goes vice versa here too. In a few weeks, we're going to have Dr. Marks, who's uh, an, uh, an expert marriage counselor. He's going to be speaking on this stage here, and I've listened to him many times also, and many other marriage counselors, I've heard the same thing. One of the major problems we see in why marriages fail and we have problems in marriages is because of communication. That is a major problem, and we just don't communicate. And if that's how we are communicating with our spouse, how often do we communicate with God? Maybe there's something wrong with our relationship there, too, because we're not communicating with God. I usually use this with high school kids, but I'll I'll ask you. Are you dating God or are you married to him? Right? Oh, dating, yeah, you go out with a person. Remember those days? Some of you might be thinking, man, it was a long time ago. Oh, you remember you getting yourself all spruced up and everything, all cleaned up. You wash, you niptoe. You wash, you get cleaned up, and then you go, looking at your watch, can I knock on the door yet? No, there's still 30 seconds before six o'clock. I told her I'd pick her up at six. Uh, and then finally, you go up, you knock on the door, you go out. Oh, it's so nice to see you. And you're talking, you're talking, you're talking, you're talking, you You go out, you sit in a movie, you're sitting there in a movie. Oh, you don't even pay attention to the movie. Oh, boy, how are you doing today? Did you have fun today? Oh, yeah. Oh, I had fun too. You know, it's so nice being with you. Oh, I love being with you too. This is so much fun. You want some popcorn? Yeah, I want some popcorn. Do you want a drink? You can drink out of my straw. I really like you. We'll share the same straw. Ooh. Wow. He does like me we're drinking out of the same straw wow this is really a special relationship okay well the movie's over let's go home and we go home you go up in there on the maybe and, and then you walk away and you don't see the person for maybe a week is that your relationship with God that date is Sunday morning and you go there you're sitting in the pew hi how are you that's good. Boy, well, I'm tired. Um, be glad when this is over so I can go home and take a nap. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you don't even talk to her. Is that your relationship? Is that, is that the dating relationship? Or are you married to God? You see the difference here? I love that illustration. I think it's the first time I've ever used that with adults, though. <laughs> John Wesley put it very, very wisely. I love how he wrote this. God does everything by prayer and very little without it. First time I heard that, I was like, "Ah, I don't like that. But the more I've thought about it, the more I've studied prayer and stuff, boy, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Do you know that for weeks and weeks, and actually more than months, people have been praying for you sitting in here right now? We have staff meetings here on Thursdays. Do you know that we pray for these campers? You know, I have been praying for you guys since last year for this moment right now. We do that. Because God does everything by prayer, I think, and very little without it. To praise God, we need Him. We need to come before him in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, and 18. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We are to pray to him all as much as possible. Have a prayerful spirit. Some people say, how do you do that? Well, it doesn't mean like you're on your knees, eyes closed, and hands folded all 24 hours of the day. But it does mean that you're in a prayerful mind state throughout the day. God is spirit. He's with you all the time. Talk to him. You're riding a car going to work. I'll tell you, when I used to drive to work, before coming here, I had a 25-minute commute. It's one of my favorite times in the morning. I would just sit and talk with God, like He's sitting in the car. Stop at the red light, and I'm still, and I don't even care if someone comes over and you're seeing my mouth move. Now you smile back. <laughs> I didn't even care. You know, sometimes we're singing songs, ah, yeah, 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 and then you look over and a person's looking at you, and like, oh, I'm just yawning. That's all I'm doing. You know. Now talk with God. My commute today to work um, is uh, about a half hour long, too. I walk to work two miles. I walk here um, almost every day, and I love it. It's a great time of prayer. I love it. It's a close time with God. I love the thing. You can do that. To grow in our relationship with God, we need to pray. Look at Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. To grow, you need to communicate with God. You need to talk to him. To deepen our relationship with Christ, we need to pray. Ephesians 6.18. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. You know something, folks? A lot of times to help us get out of depression when we're downhearted and we don't feel like going to God, that's when we need to go to God. Luke 18, 1, and he told them a parable to the effects that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. When you start to lose heart, go to God. Tell him how you feel. Even when we're so messed up and we're confused and we can't figure out up from down, pray. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. I, actually, I love Romans 8. It's one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. But I love 8.26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we know not what to pray for as we ought. You ever thought about that right there? I want to pause there. A lot of times we just don't know what to pray. Many times we think we pray for the wrong things. We don't know what we're doing when we pray a lot of times. We don't. But look how this verse continues. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us, and I love this, with groanings too deep for words. God knows your needs more than you do. You start to pray for the wrong thing, the Holy Spirit is going to fix your prayers. But you need to come to God in prayer. And the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, for our good. Oh, I love that. To be a good disciple follower of jesus we need to pray daily we need to niptoe. we need to keep this communication line open so we have a close personal relationship i'm praying that you're all married to god and not dating him i just want to close real quick with one little thing here those of you who are physicians i know there's a number of you in here and some are teachers and stuff Who have studied human anatomy physiology there's a thing in our bodies where our nervous system attaches to skeletal muscles we call it in science a neuromuscular junction i know it's getting a little technical what's happening is the neuron the cell body the soma, where the nucleus and stuff is is the center part but it has this long branching thing going out called an axon and this axon is a nerve fiber basically going down and it comes to but doesn't touch an actual muscle. There's a gap there called a synaptic cleft. There's a gap between the nerve and the muscle. It's molecular in size, it's so tiny. It looks under even a very powerful microscope that they're touching, but they're not. What happens is, when your nervous system, you're going to tell a muscle to do something, to move, like to move to pick up a pencil or move to, to move this leg, you send from the brain this impulse, and it goes from the body where the, the nucleus and stuff is, it goes through that part of the body, it recept, uh, is a receiver, picks it up, and it carries this impulse down. It's actually carried by molecules, by ions, and this, we call this an action potential. The muscle has tremendous potential to move, but it can't move until this ion channel opens up and allows this impulse to go down this long axon. It gets down to the end, and it causes something to happen. There's little tiny pockets of chemicals, we call them neurotransmitters, that when the stimulus hits this thing, they pop open in that gap and release these chemicals across. In case of muscles, it's usually a chemical called, um, as you can see here, acetylcholine. But it, mus- it goes across, and when it hits that muscle, when those little pockets explode over in through that gap and they get over here and they're picked up by that muscle, amazing thing happens. That muscle moves. Paralysis happens when that exon, that impulse, the action potential, doesn't work. The muscle has tremendous potential to actually move and do things. But without the action potential, it's paralyzed. It can't do anything. It just sits there. You can't do things without an action potential. God often won't do things until prayer is put into practice as an action potential. Is your spiritual life paralyzed? If you're wondering, how come it's just not going? what's your relationship? Is there an action potential? There's great potential, but is the impulse able to move? Pray. Feast on the word. Search for the light. That's what we do in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time we've had. Uh, We've gone a little over here, but I thank you anyway, and I just pray that that this will become a part of all of our lives, that we use prayer as our action potential, that we, that we feast upon your word, that we just just crave it. We fill our cravings, Lord, by seeking you and using your word as a light on how to guide ourselves and moving about as we live this life. Lord, help us to be utilizing the gift that you've given us as we have drawn close to you. That was the closest we could get in our discipleship, Lord, and that's what the tabernacle is showing. And how Jesus fulfills it. It is so awesome. Please be with us this day. Keep us safe. Help us not to forget to nip toe if we need it. But Lord, help us to get into your word also. And to keep the line of communication open with you. So we will have a close personal relationship. And as we do this, we also learn to worship and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, what a week we have had. It has been a fun week. And we have learned this week, God does not want your religion. He wants your relationship. How do we have a relationship with a holy God? It's very simple. God set this up a way for us to have a personal relationship with him. Back in the days of Moses, he designed a structure that has to do with camping, Yeah, the tabernacle, it was a tent thing. And this is sort of like a a drawing of what it looked like. It's no longer around today. Tents don't last too long. Um, But this is the setup that he used. And as you would come into this tent, you could come to access with God. Because God would appear in a room in the back part of this thing that was called the Holy of Holies. And God's presence, even though God is everywhere, God is spirit. God's presence would be manifest there. And the people are camped all around this thing. So the camp thing was this tent, this tabernacle, was in the middle of the camp. The different people camped all around it. And it only had one access. There's only one way to have a personal relationship with God. And it had to do with there was a group of people from the tribe of Judah living at the opening. And you had to go through them. You had to walk through that tribe to get into the opening. And then when you came inside, because it's a holy God, and we aren't holy, we're filled with all sorts of filth and stuff, we learned that we have to sacrifice ourselves. Blood has to be sacrificed to atone for our sin. Leviticus 17.11 says that. So we would bring an animal in, it would be sacrificed there. The animal's blood would be spilt, because that's how serious God says sin is. And so blood would be spilt. Then the animal would be divided into four parts. And we even sang a song tonight about that. The head, there was the soul, there was the heart, and there was the legs, the strength, would be sacrificed on this altar, this part way over here. That was the first thing. Now, remember, God's presence is way back in the back of this part of a tent. Then, that was to represent uh, the salvation, to represent like you, you're getting your sins forgiven. But then, there is a laver, a place where we get cleansed. Because we're in a, you know, we live in a place that's not very very holy. The priests and stuff that were working in there, the ground was dirty. They would get dirty and stuff, so they would have to wash. And then, you could come into this part where there's another door, just one door. There's only one way to get to God, and you come through here. Here was a table with 12 loaves of bread. And that represented the different tribes and that that was the food for the priest. Behind that was a really cool-looking lampstand, a menorah, which gave light to this holy place. And then the farthest a person could get was getting towards this last part in this room called the holy place was an altar of incense where they burned incense, which represents prayer. On the other side of that curtain, which is here shown in scarlet, On the other side was where the presence of God would be, the Ark of the Covenant. And God would actually appear there. He talked to Moses there. So God set up a way for us to be able to have a relationship with him. But what is so cool, this is called the tabernacle. But the word tabernacle means dwelling. And God came to dwell right in the middle of where the people were. That was in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Then Jesus came to fulfill this. Each piece of the tabernacle represents Jesus Christ. Every single piece. And in doing this, this tabernacle had a gate, it had a bronze altar, it had a laver, the wash basin, it had a table of bread, it had a lampstand, it had an altar of incense, and then there was the place where God would appear, the Ark of the Covenant, where the glow of God would be. God wants to have a personal relationship with us. And he set up and designed this tabernacle. And then Jesus fulfills this. And what is so cool, the good news is that Jesus came so that he could tabernacle with us. Remember, the word tabernacle means dwell. And Jesus came to dwell with us. John, the Apostle John, wrote a beautiful gospel, which means good news, all about this. And what is amazing is that he wrote his gospel based upon the parts of the tabernacle. This is so cool. For instance, in the, the tabernacle, the first thing you came to was a gate. John chapter 1, verse 14, talks about that Jesus came to dwell with us. He is the only way to get to God. He is the doorway to get in there. John starts off his gospel talking about how Jesus is the only way, the Son of God, and he is the only way we can get to God, and that's the gate. The next thing in the tabernacle was the bronze altar. And here, that's where the lambs were sacrificed, on the altar, right? John chapter 1, verse 29, tells us that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Then the next thing we see in the tabernacle was this laver, where we talked about being niptoed, where we need to daily go and be cleansed. Before we go to bed at night or throughout the day, we realize we've done something wrong against God. We need to ask forgiveness, and that's what that represents. But you know something? Jesus is called the water of life. In John chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5, there's all these things having to do with water. Jesus in water, the first miracle, turning water to wine. There's all these things having to do with Jesus in relation with water in the next section of the book of John. Then we come to the table of the showbread. That's where the bread was at. John chapter 6 and 7, Jesus says many times, I am the bread of heaven. We're supposed to feed upon him. That doesn't mean we eat him like a cannibal. We're supposed to listen to what he says and read our Bibles. That's what that is talking about. We feast upon him. Next, we come to the lampstand. John chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. We hear Jesus standing up and saying, I am the light of the world. Because the lampstand gives light and guides us on how we're supposed to to go through our life. Jesus is the one we seek. And let him tell us, through his word, how we're supposed to live. And he gives guidance to us, just like a light. Many of you, maybe last night, went on the night hike. The lights give you guidance. Jesus is the light of the world. And he said this. Then we came to the altar. Now remember, that was the closest anybody in the tabernacle could get to the presence of God. And here, we see the altar of incest, meaning prayer... In John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, if you open up your Bibles and you read that, this is at the Last Supper, and Jesus is going through this really long, detailed prayer. Jesus is praying for us. The altar of incense is prayer. Jesus is praying. Isn't this amazing? How this is set up, the Gospel of John to the tabernacle of how God dwells is wanting to dwell with us? The next part we come to is the Ark of the Covenant. They would sprinkle blood on that. In John chapter 18 and 19, we find Jesus being crucified and shedding his blood for us. Blood was placed on the mercy seat, the top of the the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus shed his blood. And then you come to the last part. When this happened on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would go in, God's presence would be manifest there and the place would glow with Shekinah glory, showing God is there. And then in John chapter 20 and 21, we come to the resurrection. God is alive. Jesus is alive. And he is spirit. He is with us all the time. He is there. The glow of God showed that God was there. Jesus was resurrected, came up out of the earth, and he proved that he is alive. The book of John is amazing because it is set up on the structure of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is not something that we just read to make us go to sleep at night in the book of Exodus. It is something that God set up at the very beginning all about how Jesus is going to come and fulfill everything so that we too can have a personal relationship with God. As I said, God's not interested in your religion He's not interested in your ceremonies, your rituals. God is interested in your relationship. He created us with two purposes. One, to have a personal relationship with him, which we can only have through Jesus Christ. He is the only way to the Father. And second, he created us and saves us so that we can worship him. The tabernacle was made to show God's presence and how to worship him. We have seen this week how Jesus fulfilled all of this. He dwells with us, and when you are saved, he puts his Holy Spirit inside of us. He is with us forever, and he is alive. And he is worthy to be worshipped. And I want to thank you so much for listening to me this week. It has been an awesome experience. I have been tremendously blessed. You notice my voice has about had it now. (laughs) But I thank God that I had a voice to be able to do this with you. And I hope... And my prayer is that you will fulfill your purpose in life, that you will know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and that you will worship him. Thank you.